supported by a leaning wooden platform, were the only landmarks. Some words were painted in block print on one of the weathered wood planks, but sandblasting windstorms had long since rendered the lettering illegible. As I stepped from the truck, a gust of hot wind swept sand into my face and pelted my sunglasses with grit. Bedouin men, in drab robes, squatted in meager shade of the two tanks, seemingly uninterested in our arrival. The whole village had an otherworldly feel to it. Apparently, people came here from miles around to fill their tanks with gas, get water, and conduct their desert trade. "Uh Uh-oh, Larry whispered. This doesn't look good. I turned to see six men walking toward us, brandishing battered rifles. I was shaken by the unmistakable anger in their eyes. These desert dwellers wore flowing Bedouin robes, stained yellow by the harsh sun. I guessed that they were some of the frontier forces I had heard about, a kind of desert police who handled feuds and disputes between remote Bedouin clans. They had now caught two Americans wandering the desert near a fenced military facility. Larry and I were quickly surrounded and escorted to one of the huts. Patches of whitewash peeled from its crumbling daub walls. A rifle butt prodded us along until we stood before the hut's darkened doorway. I instinctively stopped short, but a foot against my lower back propelled me inside. Turning in anger, I could make out only the outline of a man standing in the entryway, his robe frame eclipsing the blinding rays of the sun. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I heard the word, Jew, and felt warm spittle trickling down my cheek. We were pushed to the ground inside the hut and awaited the worst. A stocky man in frayed military fatigues pushed past the other guards and tossed a camel saddle on the floor. Dust rose in the stifling air of the dimly lit room. With an exaggerated huff, the man lowered himself onto the saddle and glared at me from a brutish, sun-scarred face like blistered leather. One eye, blood-red and puffy, was swollen nearly shut, but the appraising stare of his good eye was unnerving. Larry and I sat on the packed earth floor, our backs pressed against a sweat-stained wall. Our socks, shoes, keys, wallets, and passports had been confiscated and piled in the middle of the room. The rusted tin roof radiated triple-digit heat as thin shafts of sunlight pierced through the random gaps and holes, further irritating my sunburned skin. I lowered my head and waited for the questioning to begin. Angry words shouted in a language I didn't understand. My answer and Larry's were equally incomprehensible to our captors. A whipping wind whistled around the mud walls, blowing sand through the cracks and under the door. The air in the room was nauseating. An odor of putrefied mutton oozed through the floors and walls. It clung to my skin, invaded my nose, and mingled with my sweat-saturated hair. I had been fighting my stomach from the moment they had shoved us into this wretched place. I kept my breathing shallow and rhythmic, battling the urge to retch. Our Bedouin guards started in on us again, grilling us incessantly with unintelligible, mind-numbing questions. Although no one understood a word we said, they kept the interrogation going. The one word that I did understand chilled my blood. The men kept calling us Jews with vehement hatred. I studied the guards more closely. Their flowing, sun-faded thobes were stained with gun grease and dried sheep's blood. Strapped across their chest were stiff, cracked leather bandoliers filled with bullet casings of various sizes, though most were either empty or corroded. Traditional red-checkered Gutra scarves were wrapped around their heads and secured with rope headbands. They looked like extras from Lawrence of Arabia. I glanced at Larry, but no conversation was needed. We were in deep trouble, and we both knew it. This was not a place of constitutional liberties for tourists gone astray. There would be no Miranda rights or attorney visits. 
our next stop could well be the bottom of a shallow, sandy grave, if they bother to bury us at all. We're in forbidden territory, in a culture closed to the outside world. We were trespassers, and the punishment for this offense could be severe. We had come in pursuit of a great historical prize, so alluring that we had decided to risk everything. But at that moment, I questioned our wisdom. What made me think this trip was such a good idea? I had left my family at home, set aside my business. And for what? Was it really worth the danger, the pain, the risk? Was it really worth this? I looked away from my red-eyed inquisitor and gazed through a crack in the wall. The sun was dissolving, silhouetting a solitary Bedouin shepherd against the deep blue of the darkening sky. At his feet, a small flock of sheep foraged for scant offerings of desert sage. Although I couldn't see it from where I sat, I knew that the blackened summit of Jabal el Law's Mountain of the Almond towered above the distant range of brooding mountains. It held a mysterious relic of antiquity, an age-old secret. Just the night before, Larry and I stood on that mountain and what we had seen would change Bible maps and our lives forever. Now all we had to do was live to tell the story. For me, that story begun ten years earlier on a quiet spring evening in Southern California when I answered a call on my police radio. Chapter 2. The Shootout. Southern California, 1978. All 44 units, the dispatcher's voice crackled over the radio. We have a truck on fire on Continental Avenue. Suspicious circumstances. I was a crime scene investigator for the Costa Mesa Police Department, a plainclothesman driving an unmarked car. I was right around the corner from Continental Avenue, so I radioed back 910, meaning that I'd take the call. When I arrived at the scene, a ball of flames and thick black smoke engulfed a charred truck in someone's front yard. In the dying light of dusk, the bright orange glow illuminated a man standing behind the front screen door of the house. I approached cautiously. As I neared the porch, I could see a bottle in the man's left hand. I took a few more steps toward the house and froze. I was staring into the barrel of a semi-automatic rifle pointed squarely at my head. I wanted to reach under my sports jacket for my 9mm handgun, but thought better of it and backed off. You a cop? The man demanded from the doorway. His speech was slurred. Uh, no, I managed. The man pressed the barrel against the screen, making it bulge. Then get out of here. I slowly backed away. A moment later, I heard a loud crack overhead, followed by another. Leaves from a nearby tree rained down on me as bullets ripped through its branches. I'm not sure why the man started shooting. Maybe he had seen the yellow light mounted in the rear window of my unmarked police vehicle, which I had parked directly in front of his house. As I dove behind the car, bullets peppered the ground behind me, kicking up a spray of asphalt against my pant legs. I was pinned down with nowhere to go. Backup officers soon arrived, but the standoff with the gunman would drag on for hours. As night fell, the truck fire burned itself out, leaving smoldering rubber that filled the air with a noxious pall of lingering smoke. A thin fog began to creep in from the coast. The darkness had long since swallowed the man inside the house. After an eternity of silence, the waiting suddenly ended as the man kicked open the screen door and advanced in my direction. He staggered past the burnt-out hull of his pickup truck, spewing random shots from the rifle on his hip. A sour film of adrenaline crawled across my tongue. Sweat trickled down my back as I lifted my 12-gauge shotgun over the hood of the car and took aim. As I squeezed the trigger, I heard a loud report from another officer's weapon just to my right. Then... 
The 12-gauge erupted in my hand, and the muzzle flash blinded me as I hunched back down behind the protection of my vehicle. All was quiet again. When I peered back over the hood, I could see the gunman lying on the ground with the rifle at his feet. I inched my way toward him, my grip tight on the shotgun, and my hands moist with sweat. I could hear the sucking sound of the man's chest wounds. When I reached his side, my heart was pounding wildly, but the death rattle had ceased, and the man was clearly gone. Later, I learned that the burning truck had been a trap to lure a police officer to the scene so that the man could shoot him. Had I not been in plain clothes, the officer might have been me. A recent arrest, the loss of his job, and other pressures of life had pushed the man beyond his limits. In his alcohol-clouded mind, the cops were to blame. He had decided that life wasn't worth living. But before he left this world, he wanted to even the score by snuffing a cop. I acted as if it didn't bother me. That's what policemen do. But the image of a dying man isn't easy to forget. I soon realized that this moment required me to reassess my life. I began my law enforcement career as an energetic young police officer, ready for excitement and the opportunity to help others. I worked on patrol, had several special assignments, was a motorcycle cop, and was assigned to a SWAT team. Eventually, I became a crime scene investigator, finding and collecting evidence. Police work runs hot and cold. It alternates between yawning boredom and adrenaline-charged excitement in the blink of an eye. The job takes a great emotional and physical toll. And after years of this, many experienced cops opt for another profession. I was one of them. Maybe the shooting was the final straw. Or perhaps it was all the death I had encountered as an investigator. But mostly, I saw the disillusionment of many other officers who had endured a lifetime of stress, death, crime, and fear. Some were burned-out shells, straining unhappily for the finish line of retirement. Was that what I had to look forward to?